Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. All right, so we are going to continue in glory and redemption again, and and we're just going to review a couple of things. If you remember last week, we went through Genesis chapter 3, the second part, not Exodus. I'm skipping ahead already. Let's get to Exodus. Exodus is cool too. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, the second uh, part of the chapter, and and just the the effects of the, the fall of Adam and Eve as they ate the fruit and rebelled against God. We see things that are coming to pass, pain for both man and woman, woman in childbearing, man in providing for himself and his family. We see broken relationships, both between God and mankind and man and woman. Uh, Remember the curse that was given toward Eve is that she would desire her husband or seek to rule over him, but he instead would be the one who would rule. All of creation was cursed. We we find out that the, uh, the serpent is cursed, but he's not just the only one. God says, you are the most cursed animal amongst all the animals. In other words, all the animals had been cursed by the fall. And the ground is part, ground being cursed is part of Adam's curse. And so we also see then a physical death is promised and guaranteed for mankind from here on out. And so these are the effects of the fall that we're dealing with, these broken relationships, this pain, this, this death, physical death, that could be ultimately resulting in spiritual death as well. And, and so what we see is God's glory continues to shine, but this relationship that he established us for, these relationships, both interpersonal and with him, they have been broken, they have been ruined by the sinful choice of Adam and Eve. But God did not leave things as they were. He didn't just throw up his hands in the air and go, oh well, it was a nice try. See you guys later, I'm out. Instead, he still had a desire for a relationship for us, he st- or with us and for us. He still desired to call us unto himself. And so he announces right in the midst of the curses a plan for redemption. And that's chapter 3, verse 15, the first time we see in all of Scripture this, this clear indication that God was not satisfied with the broken relationships. He was not satisfied with us being abandoned and slaves to sin. And so he clearly states, he will bring redemption. And this one statement then begins to weave all throughout the Old Testament this thread of redemption we can see. Where we can, we can establish a clear plan as we look back through. We can see God working through men and women all throughout the history of the Old Testament in order to glorify himself and bring about the redemption of mankind through his son, Christ Jesus. And so this promise of redemption, I will put hostility between you and the woman, he's speaking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And so this promise of redemption also sets up a view of two different groups of people who will 
be established throughout history. Those who will be the offspring of the serpent, followers of the father of lies, and those who will be the offspring of Adam and Eve, the children of God, who will ultimately experience redemption. And so these two different groups of people, the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman, are are going to be at odds all throughout the Old Testament story. And so even as this story will unfold for us and reveal to us God's redemptive plan, we'll also see this battle between these two different groups of people unfold over and over and over again. And so as we look at God's glory and the story of redemption, His love for us, the next step in all of this brings us to the the history of Cain and Abel. And and many of us are familiar with this this history. We, We know of what happens here, but let's review it again. Let's look a little more deeply and let's understand both how it relates to our story of glory and redemption and how we can apply the truths we find here to ourselves today. So, uh, Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Here's what it says in the, uh, the CSB translation of the Bible. Sorry, I'm still getting used to putting on readers. I don't. It, it's that hard day when you have to acknowledge you can't see as well as you used to when you were a kid. So, because um, I look down, it's like, how come I can't see? Oh, right, glasses. Okay, so anyway. Uh, Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. The man was intimate with his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. She also gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious, and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian? Then he said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed. Alienated from the ground that opens its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. But Cain answered the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Since you are banishing me today from the face of the earth, and I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth, whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord replied to him, In that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. Then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So here we have the history of Cain and Abel. And, and I, I, I use that word in, intentionally. Sometimes we talk about Bible stories and, and we begin to think of them as myths. But it's really critical that we read these and see them not as just stories like Paul Bunyan, 
but instead Bible history. These are things that we believe because of the way that Scripture is inspired and these stories were repeated and reiterated even by Jesus Himself that these are not just mythological teachings or some sort of parable but instead historical events that came to pass just as Scripture says that apply to us today and reveal to us who we are. And so as we look at this history of Cain and Abel, we begin to see some things. So verse 1 says, The man was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. Now what's interesting is a lot of scriptural names, as we read them in the Old Testament, they are going to hearken back to a statement or to some hope that the parents had for their child. And so they name them something that sounds like their hope for them. So, for instance, if you were to have a child, instead of, uh, we, we've got a couple of new ones, instead of naming them what you had, you would have named them millionaire, right? That, uh, that just, that sounds like rich. And that's what you want them to be. Uh, or, or you would have, you know, named them something that would have been an, a description of what they meant to you. And so when Eve names her first son Cain, she's, Cain really means I have had or I now possess. It's been given to me, a male child with the Lord's help. And it's interesting, some scholars look at the name Cain and, and what Eve names him, this I have had. I now have a male child. I now have a seed. And think, was she thinking about the promise in chapter 3, verse 15, about her seed defeating the serpent when she looked at Cain? Did she think that all of a sudden her first child would be the one to make everything right? And uh, can you imagine that kind of expectation growing up? I mean, oh, you're the one that's going to fix everything. I can't wait for the day when you fix everything. I hope you fix everything. So there is some potential, while, while we can't know for sure, that we can draw out the potential that, that Eve and Adam may have had expectations for their very first child to be the one who would resolve the conflict between themselves and God. Now we find out that this is not the case. Instead, God's plans are different, and His timing is completely other. And remember, we talked last week, why did God wait so long to send Jesus? Why did God wait so long to send the one who would crush the serpent? And Scripture tells us in Galatians that it was in the fullness of time, at just the right time, when everything was perfect. And so it was not that God was delayed in the sense of it, it took longer than He meant for it to, but instead He had a perfect plan for the redemption of mankind. And it was always that Jesus would come when He did, in the, in the place that he did, under the circumstances that he did, die in the way that he did, rise again on the third day, and be Savior for all those who would believe. So we see Adam and Eve have their first child, Cain. And there's no reason to expect or, or, or to think differently than, than Cain was likely born about nine months after what just transpired as they get kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And you might ask, why nine months? Well, why would you ask that? You know why nine months, right? So, so it's, it's, it's easy to, to surmise that Cain was likely born within about nine months of their expulsion from the Garden of Eden. And then his brother is born. He's the, the next one that's recorded. Now, what's interesting in Scripture is it rarely records all of the children 
in these genealogies. It always records the ones that are critical to the redemption story. And so as we read genealogies and as we look at Cain and Abel, the fact that these are the first two told to us does not mean that these these are the only two children of Adam and Eve at this point in life. Now Cain, it would seem, is clearly the first, but after Cain is born, Eve also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now it doesn't mean that Abel was the second born, or the third born, or the fourth born, or the fifth born. Adam lived 900 and some years, and so we would assume Eve lived close to that. So we know that he was, uh, he was born sooner than the 130th born. Uh, we know that for sure. So what we do know, though, is that Eve gives birth to Abel. Abel becomes a shepherd of flocks. Cain is a farmer. Now, some people like to take these, these two different jobs and compare and contrast them and say, it's more holy to be a shepherd than a farmer. And that's not what this scripture is teaching. Every vocation can be holy in this regard when it is dedicated to God in a proper way. And so what we see is these two brothers who are practicing their own individual trades coming together and making an offering to God. It says, in the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. So let's first look at the two offerings. Some people like to say, as I've mentioned in the past, that, well, Cain gave a substandard offering because he just gave fruits and vegetables. I mean, nobody likes fruits and vegetables, not even God. And Abel gave the better offering because he gave meat. Everybody likes meat. The fact is, as we get further along in the Old Testament, we see that God asks for offerings of both animal and grain and produce. And so God views both of those as valuable offerings in worship of himself. But what is the big difference between the offerings that Cain and Abel bring? Well, we've got to look at the words. We've got to look at what the Hebrew says. We've got to look at, at, at really what Scripture says to us. Look again, it says, Cain presented some of the land's produce. Abel presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. Now, the firstborn was always viewed as the most valuable. And the fat, I mean, we all know, if, if you are a carnivore, if you enjoy eating meat, even if fat grosses you out, you know it's the tastiest part. You know it's the part you really want to, you know, sizzle up and eat. And, and so, I mean, bacon, come on, it's mostly fat. We all like bacon. You pretend to look for the package that has more meat, but you know you want the one that's like 75% fat, 25% meat, because it's the most tasty. And, and so the, the thing is, it was that Cain just brought whatever he had. Uh, I mean, all right, I got to get a gift for God. What am I going to do? I mean, you could just see, it's, it's like, you know, realizing you have a birthday party and then just kind of wandering around the house looking for something to stick in a gift bag. That's kind of what Cain does for this offering toward God. He just looks around and whatever he lays his hands to, he brings as his offering. But Abel, Abel planned ahead. Abel took time. Abel brought the best that he had And not just the best that he had, but the best 
of the best, when we're talking about the fat portions, the most valuable of the best. And so you see the difference doesn't lie in the, the, the type of offering they brought as far as grain or produce versus animal offering, but instead it lies in the value and the intent of their offering. Cain was fulfilling duty. Abel was worshiping. Cain was bringing whatever he had because he had to. And Abel was bringing his best out of devotion to God. Now the word offering here, it's not an offering in, in the, what we're going to see later on in the New Testament. Uh, sacrifices meant to pay for sin. These offerings, the word that's used here, they were, they were gifts to show respect and honor. And so if you are meaning to honor someone and you bring them an old tie in a gift bag that you got from the bottom of the closet, how are they going to feel? They're not going to feel nearly as special as if you buy them a gift that is tailored to who they are and what they like and what they long for, and you do it with planning and intent. You see, Cain's issue was not that he brought fruit and vegetables. His issue was that he brought it with a hardened heart. And he brought it out of rote duty instead of loving admiration. And so God accepts Abel's offering because it is valuable to him based on the fact that it's brought in love, that it's brought in respect and honor. And he rejects Cain's offering and has no regard for it because it's empty duty. Cain did it because he had to. Cain didn't really honor God. He just did things that made it look like he honored God. And because God can see into their hearts, because God can actually know what's going on in their minds, he responds accordingly. Now, Cain's response to his offering being rejected, to his empty ritualism, to his, his I'll do it because I have to mindset, his response to God rejecting him and his little smart aleck way of doing things is to get angry and to look despondent. Now, the, 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 what it means to look despondent is, is literally to frown. Oh, I hate God. I don't know why he's being so mean to me. I don't know why he likes Cain, or Abel more than he likes me. I don't know. I mean, I brought him. I mean, that was some decent zucchini. I mean, there was a lot of zucchini, but it was decent zucchini. If you're a gardener, you know zucchini. That's not very valuable. It's easy to come by. The thing is, is, is Cain's response to God's rejection was not one of, Oh Lord, I have sinned. I have brought you second best. I want to worship you. It is, well, God's not fair. Why doesn't God love me like he loves Abel? And he begins to frown. And then we see God looks down and, and, and communicates with Cain and he intervenes in this circumstance because he knows that something is percolating inside Cain and bad stuff are, is about to happen. So God comes and he says to Cain, why are you furious? Why are you angry? And why do you look despondent? Why are you walking around like a sad sack, angry at me when you know what's wrong here? When you understand where you have failed. And that's uh, what's interesting is God, God doesn't begin, though, by condemning Cain, but he begins by asking him some questions because what he wants out of Cain 
is for Cain to look at himself and go, you know what, God, you're right. Why? I don't know why. I don't know why I'm so angry. Can, can, you, can you speak to me? Can you show me? I mean, what's beautiful about this is that mankind is still in a circumstance where God comes and communicates with him intimately. Even after the fall, God's desire for relationship and redemption was such that he communicates and he shares his expectations. And so he gives Cain these two questions for introspection. Why are you furious? Why are you looking so, so sad? Why are you so downcast? And, and then he begins to explain to Cain, I know you know this, but how about this? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? Cain, if you just worship like you know you should, if you just change your attitude, Cain, if, if you would just show me the honor that's due me, I'll accept your offering. It doesn't have to be lambs. It doesn't have to be fat portions. Bring what you have, but bring it in the right attitude, Cain. If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? What's interesting about the, uh, that, that acceptance is um, the, the, to do right and be acceptant is actually you'll be lifted up. Your face will be made to smile. God says to Cain, if you walk with me the way that I ask you to, if you worship me the way that I deserve, and I will accept you and it will bring joy and uplift and smile to your life. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Now, this is not a literal, like there was outside of Cain's door, a little demon named Sin going, <laughs> okay? This is, this is just an anthropomorphization. This is a giving human characteristics to a concept, the concept of sin. Now, what is sin? Sin is a very real thing in our lives, but it is not in and of itself an animate object. It is instead these choices that we make, this rebellion against God, that first Adam and Eve did when they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they set the stage for all of us to fall prey to sin. We are all now born with this fallen nature. We are born with a, a tendency, and, and, and really not even just a tendency, but we are born depraved and desiring that which is against God. And God is telling Cain, I know your condition. I know your struggle. If you do not do what is right, there is sin sitting outside of your door waiting to have you. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Now, these are the same words that God used in his curse given to Eve. You will desire your husband, but he will rule over you. So we see these two words working again to express someone wants to rule you, but you need to rule over them. And that's, that's what God is saying to Cain. If you do what is wrong, if you continue down this path that I see you going down, if you continue to walk around in this hard-hearted, self-centered way, furious over things and despondent, then you will become a slave to sin. He puts before Cain this clear choice. Do what is right and you'll, get, you'll, you'll be smiling and joyful in no time. Do what is wrong and you will become a slave to sin. It will rule your life. It will have long-lasting consequences. So, 
What does Cain do? I love this. This is just a picture of a big brother, right? Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. Anybody been a big brother or had a big brother? When a big brother recommends something, don't do it. It will either hurt or get you in trouble. And if you were the big brother, shame on you. Shame on you. Shame on me. I was the big brother. I've got stories. I made my brother drive the car once, and he, he hit a pole. He was like 12, <clears throat> and I was 16, and I said, no, you drive. That wasn't very bright of me. Uh, we both got in trouble. But when a big brother recommends doing something, don't do it. Don't do it. It's just not. Until we get older, then we mellow out, and it's better. But Cain says to his brother Abel, and you can see it. You can just say, hey, Abel, let's go out in the field together. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. That's where the story just goes sideways, doesn't it? Because Cain has failed over and over again. He has been confronted by God and given an opportunity to avoid sin before he ever encountered it. And here, he deliberately chooses to go and murder his brother. So, Abel is dead. Cain is the only one left of the two. And God comes to Cain again. The Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Do you think he did not know where Abel was? God knew. God knew. Much like the question in the garden. When God comes back to the garden, Adam and Eve are hiding. God says, where are you? This is an opportunity for repentance. This is an opportunity for Cain to say to God, oh my goodness, you were right. Sin was at the door. I did not master it. And I have chosen to fall prey and become a slave. But instead of repentance, Cain doubles down. I don't know. I don't have any idea where he is, God. And then doubles down even further. Not only do I not know where he is, but God, it's not even my job to take care of him. It's not my job to pay attention to that kid. I mean, he's a mess. Have you seen him? Cain doubles down, says he doesn't know, says it's not even my job. So God then speaks to him again. This is uh, God saying, says to him, uh, what have you done? Again, another opportunity for repentance. You can imagine a pause and then your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And this is a verse that, that really should rattle our cages deeply that, that there is no sin that is hidden no matter how deep you bury the body. That every sin has a lasting consequence that God can see and hear and remember. And even those things that we think are, are long gone and taken care of and hidden are still fresh in the eyes and ears of God. 
I mean, for our culture today, just to, to know the, the things that we perpetrate in the, in the name of convenience or self-fulfillment and the blood that cries out from the ground should shake us to the very soul. So God says to Cain, as a result of his sinfulness, now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. So God's curse for Cain is this. He'll be alienated from the ground and its provision. An interesting thought to be alienated from the ground. Where did man come from and where do we go? Well, we came from the ground and the dust and we go to the dust. What's interesting, the thought of being alienated from the ground means that we potentially will struggle with the ideas of birth and death, that they become, instead of places of comfort and rejoicing, places of trouble and trauma and the things that we just can't reconcile. And we can see it in our culture today, just this desire to live forever, this fear of death, this, this devaluing of birth. It's just heartbreaking to see people who are alienated from the ground and its provision. God tells Cain the soil will be unproductive for you. Now, we can just know what this is like. Shelly and I, we have a gift. We don't grow things, we kill them. So if you have a plant that you would like killed, you can bring that to us and we can guarantee within two or three weeks we will have overwatered it underwatered it, oversunned it, or undersunned it. That even zucchini is difficult for me to grow. And so those of you who've done gardening, you know, you're cursed, Michael. Yes. Zucchini does not come easy. And, and, and this, is, this is Cain's curse. This is the curse of all those who would be the seed of the serpent, that even the very soil would be unproductive. And Cain was cursed with a life of wandering. Now, some of that will be literal, physical wandering, but we can know for sure it was always a life of spiritual wandering. The very intimacy that God and Cain had at the beginning of this chapter, where God would communicate to Cain, even if Cain was in the wrong, will now be lost because Cain won't even receive words of reproach and correction from God anymore. He will be in a state of absolute lostness and wandering from the presence of God for the rest of his life. This is a big curse. On, a, on top of the curses pronounced for Adam and Eve. And so Cain responds to God and says, Whoa, God, this is too great to bear. What a heel turn, right? I mean, Cain is like, I don't know where my brother is. It's not even my job to keep track of him too. Oh no, wait, 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 wait. Really? This is a big deal, God. Yeah. This is the just punishment for your sin, Cain. But Cain answers the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear since you are banishing me today from the face of the earth and I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. So Cain is completely freaked out 
about this curse. Now, I did highlight whoever finds me will kill me. Because I, I wanted to share something to try and help you understand that a little bit better. And a little bit later in this passage, it's going to say that Cain um, is intimate with his wife. He lays with his wife. And some of you might ask that age-old question, right? So where did Cain's wife come from? Oh, you got me there. Now, let's talk about it a little bit. Now, we will say in this era, uh, sons would have married daughter sons would have married daughters right brothers and sisters would be married and you might go ooh that's gross and yes it is today by all means and we all know that sin has caused certain conditions as sin compounds in the human body that it, and it has its way that that we we cannot share those responsibilities with our siblings right cuz then we get specially Anyway, so you, get, you know the picture, right? It's just unique children, if you... Anyway, that just gets awkward really fast. I'm sorry. Um, but in this day and age, mankind was still not suffering from the consequences of sin in the same way. Genetic defects did not exist. And in fact, we don't see God give any clear commands about close relationship marriage until the book of Exodus, until we get into the Levitical law and we start seeing laws given by God about marrying close relatives. But as we're going to go through Scripture, we're actually going to see that Abraham, if you're familiar with Abraham, Abraham married his half-sister. And once again, we all go, ooh, but that was a normal practice then. And so in the garden or or post-garden of Eden, Early mankind would have married siblings. And then after you get a couple generations in, of course, you've got cousins to look to. Oh, the variety gets better, right? And then, then, and then as, as you get into other generations, second and third cousins. And, and then by the time we get a few generations in, we've got strangers. But this day and age, when we're, we're talking about this history of Cain and Abel, a lot of us think of Cain and Abel, and we we see those pictures that we grew up with of two little boys in the field, and the big brother kills the little brother. But I want to give you a different picture, because Scripture gives us a different picture about when this possibly happened. So if you were to just to to look ahead in chapter 4, it says this, Adam Adam was intimate with his wife again, following the death of Abel and the banishment of Cain. And she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has given me another offspring in place of Abel since Cain killed him. So, Seth is born in close proximity to the death of Abel and the banishment of Cain. And then chapter 5, verse 3 tells us this. Adam was 130 years old when he fathered a son in his likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. So if Seth is born in close succession to the death of Abel and the banishment of Cain, we can reasonably assume that this history of Cain and Abel happens about 128 to 129 years after their expulsion from the garden. 
And if Cain is the firstborn child, when this happens, there is good chance that Cain is already 129 to 130 years old. Now, of course, in the Old Testament, many of these individuals live to eight, nine hundred years. This is normal in the Old Testament. And so by now, it is completely possible that not only is there Cain and Abel, but there's Cain and Abel and Betty and Veronica. I just realized I went like that. It's some, of you, some of you who know those. Anyway, uh, you know, and, and, and all these other folks. And I did the math. I did the math. I said, I'm not really good at math. I'm a pastor. Uh, we inflate numbers dramatically. There are 600 people in service this morning. But, but when you do the math, when you do the math, by the time this happens, even very conservatively, it's possible that there are about 4,100 individuals alive on the earth in that 129 years. 4,100 individuals. And that's, that's um, conservatively. That's one baby a year and kind of lays it out to, to couples and, and having enough kids to start. You, you get the picture, right? But I was really conservative. About 4,100 individuals on the earth when Cain kills Abel. So when Cain says... Oh God, when you exile me, when you kick me out, this is a big deal. A lot of times we get in our mind there was Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. Who's going to kill Cain? There's nobody else to kill him. Well, the fact is, after 129 years, if there are 4,100 descendants of Adam and Eve, and Cain is only one of them, and everybody knows what Cain did, doesn't it stand to reason that one of Cain's brothers or sisters or nieces or nephews or great-nieces or great-nephews or great-great-nieces or great-great-nephews might want to kill him as vengeance for the death of their great-great-uncle Abel? Is it possible? Absolutely. Would they look at Cain and go, that, he may be related to me, but he is evil. We got to get rid of him. 4,100 people on the earth at this time. Absolutely. If you grew up in a small town, you know it doesn't even take 4,100 people for the gossip to spread, for there to be factions, for there to be issues. So for Cain to say, God, I'm concerned that somebody's going to kill me. It isn't just Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel. It's Adam and Eve. And by the time this history happens, potentially 4,100 other individuals who are descendants of Adam and Eve, who could kill Cain. Does that help you to be able to read that and go, oh, that's why he was concerned. That makes some sense. And so Cain is concerned about being killed, but God shows his love to Cain. He says this to him, in that case, Whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. So God, in his grace and love, even though Cain deserved death because of his sin, God marked him 
in order to give him a life. Now, interestingly enough, when God gives life, it's usually in hopes that there will be repentance. That that person will, will turn away from their sin and turn around and trust in God. We don't see that happening with Cain. And so God protects, protects Cain even from the consequences of his own sin. But then still the curse is carried out. Then Cain went out from the Lord's presence, an indication that his relationship with God was never the same again. He never heard God's voice again, either in, in love or condemnation. He never heard God's voice again. He went out from the Lord's presence and he lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Interestingly enough, the word Nod, the land of Nod, Nod simply means wandering. The land of wandering east of Eden. And so here in the following chapter, or verses in verses 17 through 24, we're going to see the line of Cain. And this is really the last that we're going to hear of Cain and his descendants for the most part, other than when they're the bad guys in the stories to come. Something I want you to, to see what Scripture is trying to help us see about Cain, though, is he is the seed of the serpent. He is a descendant of his father, Satan, ultimately. As are all who choose sin over obedience and repentance. And how do we know this? Well, here Jesus himself says this. In John chapter 8, verse 44, he's speaking to the religious leaders of his day, people who would have been the pastors, the preachers, the teachers, the leaders, and he says, you are of your father the devil, the serpent, the one in the garden. You are of your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus says there is a, a progeny, a lineage that starts with the serpent and it's present in his day and it's still present in our day. Those who would follow after their father, the father of lies, the father of murder and deception, the father of rebellion against God, Satan, the serpent himself. And, and this battle between the seed of woman and the seed of the serpent, according to James Hamilton Jr. in his book Typology, he says the life and death struggle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is the plot conflict that informs the whole of the biblical narrative. In other words, this story, this history of, of Cain and Abel really sets the stage for us to see this battle between God's plan for redemption and Satan's plan for destruction, and they are going to battle and butt heads over and over and over and over and over again as we go through the, New, the Old Testament history. But then what we find recorded is not just Cain's end, and his progeny, and, and his lineage of sinfulness, but also the story of God's restoration, how he gave back to Adam and Eve. Verses 24, or excuse me, 25 and 26, Adam was intimate with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has given me, God has restored to me an offspring in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. And then a son was born to Seth, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to worship God. 
And so we see so clearly God's glorious power and we see the story of redemption unfolding. So some things for us to remember. Uh, one quick note. Mankind is, has always sought salvation and still seeks salvation. We see it in the way that Eve names Cain. He was her, her hope. Oh, he's going to save us. Coming up in Genesis chapter 6, Noah gets his name because his father was like, maybe he'll be the one that saves us. And we find that it's none of these Old Testament history folk. It's Jesus, the Son of God, the seed of the woman, who is the one that saves mankind. We can look and still today, mankind is seeking salvation. We have people all around us seeking to escape the trials and the troubles and the tribulations of this world, but they're looking in all the wrong places. Maybe you're looking in the wrong place. Only in Christ Jesus will we find salvation. Second thing we can bring home and apply to us today is that God desires genuine worship. He doesn't just want you to come and go through the motions. He doesn't want you to just bring whatever fruit you got. Instead, he wants you to bring the best of who you are in worship to him. When we look and he talks in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, I, I desire faithful love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. If you are coming to church and you sing the songs because they're on the screen, but you never engage with what they really mean and offer up your genuine worship to God, you are falling more and more in line with the practices of Cain than what is asked of you in genuine worship. Hebrews 11.4 says this about Abel. By faith, in other words, trusting in God, giving himself over to God completely, believing in God with all of his heart. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was approved as a righteous man, not because he brought sheep when Cain brought fruit, but instead it was his faith in offering the gift that brought approval because God approved his gifts and even though he is dead, he still speaks through his faith. God desires genuine worship. And then finally, sin still desires to have us. There is no doubt in my mind that sin is crouching outside of our doors every day. But we must master it. We must overcome it. And we have at our disposal the very power of God in Christ Jesus to overcome sin. James 1, verses 14 and 15, James, the brother of Jesus, writes, Each person is tempted, not when Satan comes to him and goes, <laughs> Do this. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. The potential for sin, in all honesty, doesn't lie outside of our door. It lies inside of our heart. And so when we give in to evil desire, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. 1 Corinthians 10.13, though, gives us hope. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. How do we know he's faithful? Because he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. And... He will also provide the way out 
so that you may be able to bear it. Sin desires to have you. It's rooted in your own selfish desires, but God has provided the means for you to escape sin in that he will never allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear or what you're able to overcome. And he also provides a way out. There's always a way out of sin. Sometimes it's just no and you walk away. (laughs) Talking about sin, talking about the effects of sin, the power of sin in our lives. The author, J.C. Ryle, he was a, a great theologian in the late 1800s. He says this, Let us then have it fixed down in our minds that the sinfulness of man does not begin from without, but from within. It is not the result of bad training in early years. It is not picked up from bad companions and bad examples, as some weak Christians are too fond of saying. No, it is a family disease, which we all inherit from our first parents, Adam and Eve, and with which we are born. Created in the image of God, innocent and righteous at first, our parents fell from original righteousness and became sinful and corrupt. And from that day to this, all men and women are born in the image of fallen Adam and Eve and inherit a heart and nature inclined to evil. By one man, sin entered into the world. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. We are by nature children of wrath. The carnal mind is enmity against God. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, and the like. Sin is not crouching at the door. Sin is deep within us. But we, by the grace of God, have the ability to master it, to avoid the temptation that leads to death, and instead find real and true life and freedom in Christ Jesus. You see, when we look back at this history of Cain and Abel, we see Cain falling prey to the very sin nature that came to him through his parents, Adam and Eve. You and I, we don't have to do the same thing. We don't have to be seeds of the serpent like Cain. Instead, we can do these things. We can pursue Christ, knowing He is the only hope of salvation. We can worship faithfully, We know that it's not enough to just bring whatever we have to the presence of God and say, God, take this. It's what I got. Instead, that we should be bringing the best that we have at the moment in order to worship God. And then finally, begin to practice kicking sin and temptation to the curb. I know that sounds kind of straight, kind of trite, but that's really what it takes. The things that lead you to sin, kick them out of your life. I got to tell you, this is... This is probably one of the most amazing and one of the worst inventions in all of human life, right? Because it can be a great tool for spiritual growth, or it can be like your own little personal sin factory. And, and so, what does that mean? A practical application of kicking sin to the curb is... Leave your phone behind more often than you bring it with you. Don't take it to the places where you'll spend time sinning. Instead, leave it on the counter. That's, that's just one quick little application.
for any and all of us. Pursue Christ, worship faithfully, kick sin and temptation to the curb because we have this promise. No temptation has come upon you except what's common to humanity. We don't have to be like the rest of humanity though because God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. This is a great memory verse, a great one to take with you. If Cain had only (laughs) had this verse and applied it in his life, Abel might have lived. But instead, he gave in to temptation. He gave in to the darkness. He experienced the curse and the damnation because of it. But we don't have to because of what Christ Jesus has done for us. Let's close with a word of prayer as the worship team makes their way up. Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your love for us and just the power of your word. I pray that as we read the histories of these Old Testament men and women, that we would be inspired to apply their their lessons to our lives, that we would no longer just live in any way, but instead we would see what they have done right and see what they have done wrong and walk according to the scriptural guidance that you've given to us. Thank you for the fact that when we are tempted, you provide a way out so that we can stand up under it. I pray that you would continue to just convict us of the sin that so easily entangles, that you would guide us into holiness and that you would keep us from the way of Cain. You would keep us from the way of self-righteousness and destruction, but instead of take us to a place where we rely on your son Christ Jesus for our righteousness and find new life in him. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. This morning as we close in worship, I just want to encourage you, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you'd like to know more, find somebody you can talk to, ask a question, uh, come find me uh, later today, but, but don't let the day pass. If you really want to know what it is to, to be saved, to find salvation from the things of this world, Christ Jesus is the only answer. And if you're not sure how to find Him, how to walk with Him, how to make Him the Lord of your life, Come and talk to someone, either while we worship or before you leave today. Let's sing together.
Amen. It means so be it, Lord. It means we agree together that this is how we long for things to be. To be blessed by God's presence, to see his face, to walk with him. Cain had all of those things. And yet he still chose his own selfish desires and experienced cursing and wandering. May it not be so with us. May we understand the nature of temptation. May we genuinely walk in the presence and blessings of God, knowing that He will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear, but will also provide a way out so that we can stand up under the temptations and proudly declare His glorious strength and restoration. Amen. Amen. May it be so, Lord. God bless you this week as you walk in His presence, as you stand up and walk away from temptation, and as you proclaim the name of Jesus Christ to those you encounter. See you guys throughout the week. We've got stuff going on. I think Monday night is still Bible study going on, David. Uh, 7 o'clock downstairs. Uh, Thursday night, we've got youth. And then um, next Sunday morning, of course, Sunday Bible School. We'd love to have everybody there and joining us for one of our great classes. Adults, Revelation upstairs. Ladies down in the women's room. Doctrine in the large through room. And then classes for kids of all ages. So God bless you guys. See you throughout the week and next week as you walk in.